to Witglass Unfiltered. I'm your host, Courtney Huntington, and this is episode 77. So glad to have you back with me. I've got a fresh French press sitting here in front of me. I haven't even pressed it yet. I just uh, poured the water over it a few minutes ago. I'm really excited. The weather where I am is gorgeous. It's uh, in the low to mid-60s this morning, and I'm really looking forward to drinking this cup of coffee on a cool, crisp morning and talk to you for a few minutes about what's going on in the world today. As I have mentioned in recent previous episodes, I have uh, prepared notes for a few episodes that I think you'll find interesting. And I have done three or four four now consecutive episodes on technology. I think it's only three. But I want to talk to you more about technology again today because I don't want to get too far from this Apple uh, event before I give you uh, a little bit more complete thoughts about it, um, more uh, sober thoughts, shall we call them. Not that my thoughts the other day were not sober, but now that I've had a few days to reflect, I want to give some um, some more thoughtful responses to the event that happened. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And um, and I'm I'm waiting here right now on my French press to uh, finish steeping. What I've done today with the preparation of the French press is I've used the uh, Light City Roast Coffee, the Lise Cafe Roast from Trader Joe's that I've told you I love. Uh, The description, in case you don't remember it or haven't heard it before, is a blend of whole bean Arabica coffee from Kenya, Ethiopia, and Tanzania. Very lightly roasted to bring out the nuances of the brew. Uh, And then on the back they say it's a, a Norwegian coffee tradition The light roast illuminates the fruity flavors and unique characteristics often obscured by darker roasts. And I completely agree with that. I tend to prefer lighter roasts because I like the depth of flavor. Um, The darker roasts, in my opinion, tend to mask the, um, the true complexity of the coffee. Now, that's not universally the case. I have had some very well done dark roasts. Very well done in the sense that I think that they taste good and the roast really matches the the bean and actually brings out flavor. Now see, this is to me the important thing about roasting anything really. If you roast something to the point of making it just taste like it's a roasted something or other, Well, in my opinion, you've roasted it too much, okay? I don't know if you've ever roasted your own nuts, like almonds or pecans or walnuts or something like that. I have. I haven't done it recently. I used to do it all the time. I mean, you know, every week or so, I was roasting another batch of something. And so I found different roast levels. Uh, for years and years, I didn't like eating roasted almonds that I would buy in the store because I thought they tasted, I don't know, for a long time, I couldn't put my finger on it. I, I now 
think I can put my finger on it. But at the time, I just thought they, they don't really taste good. That you know, they, I don't know, they, they they tasted a little burned. It's not quite burned, really, but there was just something wrong with them. And now. I look back and I realize what was wrong with them. The problem is that they were roasted too much. They were too dark. And so the almond flavor was almost completely roasted out of them. When you roast almonds properly, what you end up with is an added layer of complexity to the flavor of the almond. So rather than taking away flavor, a proper roast actually adds flavor. Typically with a dark roast coffee, though, the roast is too dark for that bean and it actually detracts from the flavor. Yes, it adds the flavor of burnt bean. And if you like the flavor of burnt bean, that's fine. Some people like the way things taste burnt. There are some things that I like to have burnt. I love burnt marshmallows, for example. But I like the complexities of the coffee flavor. I enjoy the way coffee tastes. And really, I don't know a lot of people who drink dark roast coffee who aren't putting cream and sugar in it. And to me, that by itself is an indicator that the coffee has been roasted too much. If you feel like you always have to put cream and sugar in it, chances are the roast you're drinking is too dark and you should try something lighter. Now, unfortunately, it's hard to wean people off of the the cream and sugar variety of coffee because that becomes the flavor not just that the person is used to, but the flavor of nostalgia. They attach that flavor to memories that are connected with their drinking of coffee. And assuming they're positive memories, well, now the person has positive memories attached to that flavor. And they don't, that's the kind of coffee they want now. They don't want the other kind of coffee. Well, I understand that in our day and age, pontificating about coffee seems a little small a little unimportant, but I don't always want to be talking about the heavy political stuff because I think we talk about that kind of stuff too much. And frankly, I think this stuff matters. So I'm, I'm going to say this without trying to pontificate too much, that if you like really, really dark roast with cream and sugar in it, that what you really like is cream with coffee flavoring. And if that's what you like, that's fine. I'm not judging you for having that taste. You're welcome to enjoy whatever you want. And if that's what you enjoy, that's great. Enjoy it. But I propose to you that you should try drinking some lighter roasts, like the one that I am drinking now. I'm going to continue this description 
Um, let's see. The light roast illuminates the fruity flavors and unique characteristics often obscured by darker roasts. The lighter roast allows the natural flavors of the beans to showcase their brightness and delicate nuances. Now, before I continue, I'm going to press my, my French press. It's been, it's been steeping now for over eight minutes because it's been over eight minutes since the recording started and it was already steeping probably for a couple minutes before that. I don't tend to mind that with my French press. I actually enjoy the, the full range of flavors. In fact, when I make a French press, I, I don't follow the advice of some coffee experts, which is to, to let the water sit for one minute after boiling before you pour it over the grounds. I prefer to go ahead and pour it right over. In fact, I like it when you pour it over the, the grounds in the French press. And as the water, as you tip the, the carafe or the coffee pot, and the water um, glides over the hot body of the carafe or coffee pot, or I, I should say um, kettle, you know, your water kettle, that it boils again because the the sides of the container are hot, 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 hotter than 212 degrees. And so it makes the water boil. And so as you pour the water over the coffee grounds in the French press, you get fresh boiled water that's going to be 211, 210, 209 degrees right over the grounds. And then I pour it slowly and I... Um, I make circles with the water to make sure that all of the grounds end up submerged in the water and they, they get naturally mixed in. I tend to not actually use a spoon or anything like that. I just pour the water, I let it mix that way, and then I let it steep, and then I press it. Now, I like doing it that way because the hotter water draws out even more of the flavors. And I don't mind steeping my French press longer. Usually it's supposed to be about four minutes. That's what the books and websites tend to recommend. I tend to like mine to steep for at least five to six minutes. I just enjoy the full range of flavors that can be drawn out that way. Now, I do believe it's possible to oversteep coffee. With French press preparations, you can certainly leave it too long. But if you're using a really coarse grind for your French press, chances are you're not going to oversteep it easily. Excuse me. Had a little bit of a hiccup there. Um, okay. Continuing the description, the lighter roast allows the natural flavors of the beans to showcase their brightness and delicate nuances. Kenya double A, Ethiopian Sadamo, and Tanzania. Hi, I, I did it. I did it. I, I told you a couple weeks ago in an episode that for years I, I thought it was Tanzania, and 
every now and then it still slips out. Tanzania coffees. Kenya Double A, Ethiopian Sadamo, and Tanzania coffees are blended for a complex cup of coffee with a sweet berry finish. Now, this time when I made this, I actually made it close to double strength. I just wanted to see what it would do because it, it's a very light roast. Um, and, and so it's not quite double strength. I used four, uh, four scoops, which is more than four tablespoons. It's like I forget this particular scoop size, I think is one and a half tablespoons. Uh, I, I should measure it again, but it, it's it's four scoops, um, not rounded, just level scoops of beans. I put through the grinder um, and but it is it, it is certainly double the amount of beans that I normally used to grind to put in. Uh, it's not double what I've been doing with the list cafe. But it's absolutely delicious. I'm sure you could hear me pouring it up a couple minutes ago. All right, enough coffee talk for today. Let's talk about technology. Let's talk about the iPhone. Let's talk about the iPhone X, as I am going to call it. I think that calling it the iPhone X is a gooberish thing to do, uh, as much as I love Apple. And I think that they usually get this kind of stuff right. I think calling it the iPhone 10 is weird. Now, <clears throat> do I think that calling it the iPhone 10, while also just having introduced an iPhone 8, is so weird that people aren't going to buy it? No. People are not going to not buy it because they're calling it the iPhone 10. I think that if they simply had the number 10, that would make a difference, but they're calling it the iPhone X using the Roman numeral 10. Um, so I, I think that there's something about that that strikes people differently. I think it'd be weird to have an iPhone 8 sitting right up there on the web page at the Apple store or on apple.com iPhone 8 and then iPhone 10 right next to it. I think that that might weird people out a little bit, but having an iPhone 8 and iPhone X, um, I think that at least visually, it's going to, uh, to strike people differently. Um, so I, I don't think that that particular thing is a deal breaker. I, I think it's silly, but it's not a deal breaker. Um, by all accounts, both the iPhone 8 and the iPhone X are gorgeous. And one thing I didn't mention in the last episode, um, which was Tuesday afternoon after the, the big event, was that the iPhone 8 is using aluminum for the band that goes around the sides. So it has a glass front, of course, as always, and a glass back now. Um, and this is the... Hmm. This is the the third device that had a full glass back. The iPhone 4 and the iPhone 4S had uh, a full glass back. The iPhone 5S had a partial glass back, um, just up at the top uh, to allow the signal, the radio signals out. Um, 
So Apple definitely likes this design. Uh, I, I, I seem to remember the, uh, reading at some point along the way that the, the iPhone 4 was the design that Apple really wanted, that Johnny Ive particularly really wanted for the first device, the original iPhone. But they, they just couldn't get the, the engineering right for the first iPhone or for the iPhone 3G or for the iPhone 3GS. So obviously Apple likes this design. Johnny Ive really likes the glass front, glass back, metal band around the sides. Um, so the iPhone 8 has the aluminum band, which means it's basically the same material as you had on the iPhone 7 and the iPhone 6S, and the iPhone 6, and the iPhone 5S. It, it's going to be significantly different than the iPhone 5. That particular aluminum um, turned out to be not a particularly great version. It scratched and, and dinged up really easily, and the, the color got... Um, you know, just got marked up off of it really easily. That sort of thing doesn't happen with the the newer um, the newer finishes that started with the iPhone 5S. So this aluminum band around the iPhone 8 is going to be a lot like the aluminum that you see have seen on um, at least the last three to four iterations of the iPhone. The iPhone X, on the other hand does not have an aluminum band, but it has a stainless steel band. And uh, from the reviews that I've read from those who were at the event and got to actually hold the devices, it does make a difference. It, you know, it, it's, it might be easy to think, well, it's just metal. And, you know, from, from the publicity pictures, it looks pretty much the same to me, but apparently there is a noticeable difference in the way it feels and the way it looks when you hold it in your hand. Um, so the iPhone 8 is very cool. The iPhone X is very cool. By all accounts, they are both truly gorgeous devices. And apparently, the top notch on the iPhone X is not quite as big a deal to you when you're holding the device in your hand because the rest of it is so gorgeous. Um, to me, it's still really ugly. Uh, it, it really does seem to me that Apple has made a really bad design choice and it really surprises me because this is the sort of design choice that Apple usually wouldn't make. Usually Apple won't make an ugly choice just to get the tech in there. Now, I, I did read an article from John Gruber, which uh, I highly recommend that you read. John Gruber is, in my opinion, uh, the, the best of the best when it comes to uh, technology review, particularly consumer technology, particularly Apple. He's got a really great article with, um, with some of his initial thoughts on um, 
on all, all of the things announced. Uh, so uh, the title of his article is Thoughts and Observations on the Products Announced at This Week's iPhone X Introductory Event. And it, it's a long article, and he talks about uh, you know, a variety of things. And w- one of the points that he makes is that the, the top notch on the front of the iPhone X seems to fall in a similar category to the camera bump on the back of the phone, which has been there since the iPhone 6. So the iPhone 6, iPhone 6S, iPhone 7, and now the iPhones 8 and X all have a camera bump on the back because the device has gotten so thin they can't fit all of the hardware for the cameras inside the shape of the phone. And um, so John Gruber proposes that that's the way to think about this top notch is that just like Apple was willing to uh, to put that bump back there and make it a design feature, even though it's like a wart on the back of the phone, um, Apple has taken this top notch and they have just leaned into it. They've owned it. Um, I, I hear what he's saying. I understand his take. Um, he's he may even be right, but I still think it was a bad design choice. I think he thinks it was a bad design choice too. Uh, in fact, you know, I, I'll just go ahead and and read you a portion of of what he says about the iPhone X. Um, interestingly, he he completely agrees with me on calling it the iPhone X. I should should I should say I agree with him. He's the he's the big technology um, analyst superstar, um, but I came to this uh, opinion independently of him. Um, but he says about the name, he says, I was wrong about what Apple would call it, but I still say every single point I made arguing that they would and should pronounce it X was correct. And I, I totally agree with him. I think calling it the iPhone 10 is really weird and calling it the iPhone X would be better. And I'm going to call it the iPhone X. Um, And then he says about the notch, it offends me. It's ungainly and unnatural. Clearly, the ideal of an all-screen design, to use Apple's own words, has no notch at all. This is not that. But what I dislike more than the notch isn't the notch itself, but that Apple is fully embracing the notch in software. I really wish their software design rendered the ears, that's the two portions that rise up around the notch, with black backgrounds while using apps. I'd be fine with embracing the notch on the home screen and lock screen. And then he says, it's the front-facing equivalent of the camera bump. It offends me because it's not just imperfect, but glaringly, deliberately imperfect. But again, exactly as with the bump, I understand why it's there. I don't like it, but it wouldn't keep me from buying the phone. Um, And he, he goes on to say more, about it, and um, and he makes the point, and I completely agree with this. This is is where my thinking has developed over the course of this week, even without holding it. I've thought, could I buy an iPhone X? This was the question in my mind on Tuesday, having seen it, having 
the confirmation from Apple that they were really doing this, I've wondered, would I forego the other benefits of the iPhone X just to avoid that notch? Because that notch really offends me aesthetically. I think it's a terrible design choice. I think it insults the audience. It's not like needing to have a drain spout on the outside of your building and so you make the drain spout look really pretty. You put gargoyles around it or something like that. It's not like that at all. Uh, The... You could argue that the camera bump on the back of the iPhones, including the iPhone X, is more like that. They felt it was necessary to have the bump, and so they designed it to look nice. Okay, that's great. This camera notch does not look great. It looks terrible. It's like they they did the exact opposite. They said... Oh, we need to have a drain spout here. So they cut a big hole out of the wall and put a PVC pipe sticking out. So the design is terrible. I haven't held one. As I said on Tuesday, I'm reserving my full judgment until after I get to hold it in my hands. But it does bother me as someone who admires Apple and has admired Apple for a long time because of their design sensibilities. It bothers me that they seem to have really blown it on this one. I'll wait till I use it to be sure, but the question that I have asked myself is, would I be willing to buy the iPhone X? I think the answer is that I would want to hold the device in my hand before I made a choice. I would want to see. Does everything else about it work so much better that I would feel that I could put up the notch for a while? Maybe maybe there is something about the way Apple does the screen that does appear more like a gargoyle than a PVC pipe. So I'll wait and see. I still think it's a terrible design choice. I think that there was a better way, but I'm not sure that I have an idea of what the better way would have been. Maybe next year we'll get a version where everything, they've, where Apple's figured out how to put everything under the screen and there's no notch. Or maybe it's two years away. Next year will be the iPhone XS. So I don't have a proposal for how they could have done it better exactly. So I reserve judgment. We'll see. The, um, the John Group is one of those, by the way, who makes the point that the stainless steel looks and feels nicer in the hand. Um, he also points out that the phone is heavier. To me, both phones are gorgeous. They have similarly gorgeous glass backs, so I want to see how the stainless steel feels. The thing about the iPhone X, one of the main things that 
I love about it is that it's still got the huge screen and it's got the amazing cameras just like you get with the iPhone 8 Plus, just like you have gotten with the iPhone 7 Plus, and yet the camera in the iPhone X is even better than the iPhone 8 Plus camera. So that's better, but the thing that really attracts me to it is that it will be smaller in the hand and in the pocket than the iPhone 8 Plus. So you get all the benefits of the great iPhone 8 camera, plus you get the even better camera, and it all feels a little smaller. Now, another thing that has been making the rounds following is the, uh, is the benchmarks, the performance benchmarks of the, um, of the iPhone 8, the iPhone 8 Plus, the iPhone X, the new A11 Bionic chip. And, and um, again, I'll just go ahead and refer to what, what John Gruber says because I already have his article pulled up. Um, he says, this chip apparently benchmarks faster than some MacBook Pros, both in single and multi-core. Not recent MacBook Pros, but today's MacBook Pros. And that is an excellent point, well said. I've said before that I believe that Apple needs to to change their onboard CPUs in their laptops and desktops to their own chips. And I firmly believe that it would be possible for Apple to do this without sacrificing any of the benefits that have come from using Intel chips. I think that Apple's um, chip making has shown itself to be light years ahead of what their competitors are doing. And I think that it that Apple has shown itself in general to know, hmm, how do I say this? To, I, I think that their software skills are good enough that they could, that they could design the chip and the the operating system connection to that chip in such a way that all of the Intel-based apps and features, etc., would not be um, interrupted, disrupted in any way. I think that this is the direction that Apple needs to go in order for their devices to become what Apple wants them to be. I think that the Apple laptops and desktops would already be better than they are if Apple were not continuing to use somebody else's chips. My prediction, I don't have a crystal ball for this, but my prediction is that within a couple years, Apple will make that switch. Um, I, it's been now... How long has it been since Apple introduced the Touch Bar? I think it's only been one year since they introduced the Touch Bar on the MacBook Pro. So uh, a refresh cycle is one to two years away. 
uh, by refresh, I mean uh, overhaul, a, a redesign, uh, so a, um, a physical redesign, not just uh, a, a spec bump, um, an internals uh, sort of bump. I think that a, a full refresh, a full redesign is due one to two years from now, and I would not be at all surprised if Apple introduces its own chipsets for their MacBook Pros, at least. Now, we'll see. Maybe they won't introduce it on the MacBook Pro first. Maybe they'll do the same thing they did with the little 12-inch MacBook two and a half years ago, and they'll introduce it as a high-end MacBook thing first, and then they'll be able to see how it goes. Now, they did change chips for the 12-inch MacBook, so it's not using the same, or at least it wasn't at the time. I, I forget if they've changed the chipset back. I don't think they have. I think they're still using the same chipset. I mean, basically, I, I'm sure it's an improved version of it. Um, but I, I'll have to look at that. But maybe that's the sort of thing that they would do, introducing their own chips in a high-end MacBook before switching over the full MacBook Pro lineup. But I think it's something that Apple needs to do. I think it's something that Apple is going to do. They have shown that they are capable of making chips that are not just at the same level as their competitors, but are far exceeding their competitors. Apple's chips are leading the way in mobile chipsets. Far and away leading. And I, I think that the fact that these chips that are in the new iPhones, these pocket computing devices, the fact that these chips are faster than the current MacBook Pro chips indicates that Apple is perfectly capable of making chips for laptops and desktops. Perfectly capable. And I would wager that it's going to happen. I also think it's going to happen and nobody's going to know until Apple announces it. And everybody's going to be blown away by it. I think that it's going to be that sort of thing. Apple is going to say, oh, and one more thing. All of the new MacBook Pros will be running on a special chipset. Blah, blah, blah. I think that the Apple Watch and the iPhone X, the Apple Watch Series 3 and the iPhone X are the two stars, the device stars of the Apple show. But it is the Apple chips that are the real stars. 
to say they're the real stars, that they're the real, mm, the, I mean, as long as we're going to be using a film analogy, um, the, the chipsets are like the, the director or the producers. When, when you watch certain movies, it's got these stars and you go, eh, you know, I mean, it was, it was a decent movie, but, uh, you know, it, it, I don't know. There's just something about it that d- you, things didn't quite fit. Well, that's the producer. One of the reasons that certain stars have the level of stardom they do, let's, let's say people like Tom Hanks, Tom Cruise, um, there, there are others that I, I'm not going to be able to think of off the top of my head. But one of the reasons that these big stars are always, that their movies are always so good, not necessarily always Oscar worthy, not necessarily the best of the best of the best, but are consistently good is that they produce their own movies and they've got excellent production teams that do a really good job and have a really good eye for how to fit things together. Well, I think that that is the role that these chips are playing. The chips in the Apple devices, you've got the W1 chip that is in the Apple uh, AirPods, and then a couple of the Beats headphones as well, because they're owned by Apple. And then you've got the new W2 chip that is in the Apple Watch. And I forget all the specs of that and exactly how that differs from the W1, etc. But obviously, they're in the same chip family. So we can expect the W2 to eventually come to the AirPods, probably, or something like that. I, I don't know, but... They're, they're in the same family. They have the same W. So the W2 is more advanced than the W1, but they, ha- they must be doing similar operations. Um, so you've got the Apple one. I mean, uh, the, the W1 that's in the AirPods. You've got the W2 that's in the Apple Watch Series 3. You've got the, um, the A11 now in the latest iPhones. And of course, you've got, you know, the a10, A9, A8, A7, A6, before that. Um, and then, of course, you've got the A10X that's in uh, some of the iPads. So you've got these chips that are being made. But in addition, you've had the M chip in the iPhone since either the iPhone 5 or the iPhone 5S, the motion sensor. Um, you've had the secure enclave and, and that whole thing um, in the iPhone, the secure enclave for the um, for the Touch ID, you're going to have a secure enclave now for the Face ID. You've got, um, in addition to those, you've got, um, oh, you, you've got the, the system on a chip that, that's in that little cluster, what's the word, um, the, the rosin that's inside the Apple Watch. So Apple is making a lot of chips, a lot of chips that do different things. I have said before that I think Apple will soon come out with an AI chip that will be a secure enclave dedicated to Siri and artificial intelligence. 
I think it's going to happen. I think it needs to happen. I think it will happen. I think another thing that needs to happen and will happen is that Apple needs to and will produce their own chips for their laptops and desktops. I really think it's going to happen. And I think that when it does, it's going to be a really good thing. I think Apple will be light years ahead of their competitors. And I think that everybody will be blown away by the performance on the laptop and desktop um, configurations. All right, that's enough for today. Episode 77 of Glass Unfiltered. Thanks so much for being with me today. As always, if you're enjoying this, please share it with your friends. You can subscribe on iTunes if you're not already subscribed. If you're not subscribed, please do subscribe. That helps us uh, know uh, how many people are listening. We obviously don't know who you are, but um, it helps us see how many people are listening to the show and um, brings potential for, uh, for sponsorships and, and things like that. So please subscribe on iTunes if you haven't and share that iTunes subscription information with your friends and family. You can do that, of course, on Twitter, Facebook, and any of the other social media platforms. You can send people text messages and emails with that information. So uh, please share the, the website and the podcast with your friends and family, but also uh, consider giving some feedback. Maybe you've got questions, suggestions. Maybe there are things you'd like to hear. Maybe there are people you'd like me to interview. And if you want to hear me have a conversation with somebody, send me an email at halfwit at wit.glass. That's H-A-L-F-W-I-T, halfwit at wit.glass. Of course, go to the website. Things are developing there. There will be new things coming soon. It's a busy time of year for me, but I'm getting a handle. I'm catching up on uploading podcast episodes and all sorts of things. So uh, check out the website. Uh, check out my Twitter feed at WitGlass. That's my handle on Twitter. And if you are enjoying this and have some money that you'd like to contribute, this is a listener-supported program. And we would absolutely love to hear from you and receive your financial support in addition to the other forms of support that you may already be giving. And, you know, maybe the show's worth 99 cents to you. Or, I forget, I, I probably, I'm not the sort of person who puts in the 99 cent thing. I probably have a dollar, two dollars, three dollars, five dollars, ten dollars. There are different amounts that you can contribute. And if it's a dollar, that's great. We'll take it and we'll use it well. If it's a thousand bucks, that's great too. We'll take that and use it well too. Every bit helps. Thanks again for being with me today for this episode of Witglass Unfiltered. I'll be back soon with more discussion about education. And I have a wonderful jazz album that I've been listening to for the last uh, week or two that I've absolutely loved. And I talked to the... Um, the record label, and they said, yes, absolutely. We'd love for you to review it. You're welcome to use um, 
to play anything from the record that you want on your show. So I'm so excited to introduce you to this album. It's just an absolute joy to listen to. So that's coming up really soon. Thanks again for being with me. Have a great day and I'll be back with you soon.